You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray together. Father, We pray that your spirit will come and help us to understand and to see the truths of the passage before us in 1 Corinthians 5. In this oft-neglected but so very important topic of church discipline. Father, as we continue to seek to lay a solid foundation for Redemption Church, we know that this is an important topic that needs to be discussed, that we need to be prepared for before we ever have to do it. But Father, even though this idea of church discipline is so very offensive and polarizing in our culture today, God, I pray that you would help your people see the beauty of the way you've designed your church to function and operate. Lord, that even though church discipline is a painful thing, it is a good thing for your church and for the soul who will be disciplined. Father, we pray that you would help us to love one another, even if it means disciplining one another. So, Father, Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear the truths before us. And, Lord, may the words of my mouth be pleasing to your ears and fitting for building up your church this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So these last few weeks, as we're, again, preparing for the launch of Redemption Church, we've 
We've talked a lot about membership, particularly these last few weeks, this idea of covenant membership, that when the church, the local church, the members covenant together in such a way in which they agree to, to care for one another, love one another, support one another, protect one another. And we've talked about how this idea of membership is, is very much needed that we need this sort of community accountability, that God has not designed the Christian life to be lived in isolation, but within the community of the church for our good, for our building up, for our protection. And we've talked about how members have the responsibility of training one another, training one another in the scriptures, helping one another grow in godliness, and that in a lot of ways every member is responsible for for growing in such a way that we're able to model the Christian life to other people, particularly those who are younger in the faith. And so church membership is a beautiful, wonderful thing that, again, so often we've lost sight of as Baptists in so many recent decades. But there's another side of church membership that needs to be spoken of, and this is the idea of church discipline. It's essential to our convictional identity as Baptists, but so often it's very much neglected and sadly very seldom practiced in many churches. This is a neglected side, but such an important side called church discipline. Now, the idea of church membership and church discipline, I think, was established by Jesus himself. This isn't my idea. It's not your idea. It's not Paul's idea. This is Jesus's idea, right? So, I mean, think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, where he he clearly lays out a three-step process of how we're to deal with a member in the church who's in unrepentant sin. And he goes on to tell the disciples, he says, whatever you bind on earth, bring into the membership of the church, right? They will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the church has the responsibility of ensuring that that which we bind in membership of the church reflects the membership of the church in heaven, meaning that the church has the responsibility of ensuring that its members are converted, born-again believers in Jesus Christ. But on the tail end of that, the church also has the responsibility to loose, meaning to remove from membership those who prove through their hard-heartedness that they aren't born again. Now, the church has been given the keys of the kingdom, And we are given this responsibility, and we must ensure that we are handling these keys faithfully. So the concept of church discipline is incredibly offensive to our American culture, particularly Americans like us, who have grown up in a a culture, a society that is in many ways anti-authoritarian and radically individualistic. Meaning, I don't like anybody telling me what to do, right? That's kind of our natural bent. Like, we grew up, I don't know if you remember the the Burger King commercial, right? But it was all about, have it your way, right? That's like the motto of our society. You do you, man. Whatever you want to do, you go do it. You live how you want to live. And that's kind of the idea, the mindset of our culture. So the idea of telling someone in the church that they're in sin and that they're wrong and that they need to repent and change... Man, that is about as countercultural as it gets. And to be so countercultural to say, if you don't repent of this sin in your life, we're going to love you, we're going to care for you, we're going to try to urge you to follow Jesus, but we will remove you from the membership of our church if you don't repent. Now, that's just 
offensive. I mean, there's just, in our society, that is about as offensive as you can get. But yet, it's what the scripture says. Because it, after all, to us, it feels like that's the unloving thing to do. It feels like that's the hate-filled thing to do, to remove somebody. I mean, after all, shouldn't the church be inclusive? Shouldn't the church be accepting of all people? At least that's the, the gut response that we have, the initial carnal response that we have to this idea that we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so I hope this morning to demonstrate you to you from, from 1 Corinthians 5, I want to show you from the text that church discipline isn't unloving. It's not unloving. In fact, it's the most loving thing a church can do for wayward sinners. That church discipline isn't hate-filled, it's love-filled. When we understand its purpose and we understand how it must be understood and gone about. So beginning, so being a, a member of Redemption Church, we hope to take membership very seriously. We want to take it very seriously. And that means, of course, we want to take church discipline seriously because we believe both membership and discipline are things that are good for our Christian lives. It's good to help us grow in godliness. We need this, that these ideas of membership and discipline, binding and loosing, are God's gifts for your good, for my good. I need them. You need them. So before we dive into the text, let me, let me make a quick distinction, though, as we think about this idea of church discipline, because there's really two different types of discipline in the church. There's formative discipline, and then there's corrective discipline. Both of those are very important to make sure we understand what we're talking about, right? So formative discipline is the positive discipline of the church, right? As each member of the body comes underneath the teaching ministry and discipleship ministry of the church, right? The church is built up. It's positively encouraging you, forming you. Like right now, as I'm preaching this morning, I'm hoping that by God's grace, that, that the work I'm doing up here is forming you, disciplining you in such a way that you're encouraged further into Christian maturity. Right? That should be, in many ways, the body of Christ is always disciplining each other formatively, right? That we should all be building each other up in this way. So the right preaching of the word helps, helps you be formed in discipline. But there's another factor called corrective discipline, which is what 1 Corinthians 5 is about. Corrective discipline is the kind of the negative version of this, not negative in that bad, but just kind of the opposite, in which corrective discipline in the church seeks to correct a wayward member and to bring them back on the right track. Right? That's what corrective discipline does. So formative discipline is showing you this is the way to follow Christ, Corrective discipline is saying, no, that's not the way to follow Christ. Come back this way, right? That's, but both are important. Both need to be happening in the church. Both formative and corrective discipline should be happening in our life together as a covenant community all the time. All the time. It should be a part of our life together. That not only should you be receiving formative and corrective discipline, but you should be giving formative and corrective discipline to the people in your life in the church. Because in formative discipline, you're, you're speaking a sound biblical word to another person in the body. Something like, you know, brother, you, the way you came in early today and helped unload the trailer, and that was a great act of service. Thank you for your faithfulness in the body and, and modeling the service of Christ. 
That's just a word of encouragement. That's, that's formative discipline. Right? That's, that's encouraging that person, building them up, saying, hey, you're, you're doing great, brother. That's encouraging. You're following Christ in this way. So an example of negative example of this is saying, you know, brother, you were supposed to come into the unload the trailer this morning, right? And you didn't show up. So brother, let your yes be yes and your no be no and be more faithful in your service to the church. All right, that's a small example of corrective church discipline. Now, both of these should be happening all the time in our relationship with one another. That's a simple example, a super baby example, right? But it's, a, it's that sort of personal encouragement and admonishment, that formation and correction that should just be a part of the culture and the life of our, our church together as Redemption Church. So it's only in the most public senses, the most serious and public cases of unrepentant sin, does the process of corrective church discipline laid out for us here in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18, only then will those public cases be taken to the body. So prayerfully, such cases will seldom, if ever, happen in Redemption Church, but we don't want to be naive, and we understand that sin is deceitful. And so we want to be prepared, understanding how are we going to handle this before it happens. So let's look at this text together. If we look at 1 Corinthians 5, we see that Paul rebukes the church of Corinth for failing to enact corrective discipline on a man who is having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. So Paul charges the church to remove this unrepentant man from the membership of the church as an act of love. It's the loving thing to do. So here's the sermon in a sentence this morning, if you want to write this down. Corrective church discipline is a loving act that protects the purity of the church and hopes for the restoration of the unrepentant sinner. Both are very important, right? That corrective church discipline, it's a loving act, not a hateful act. It's a loving act that does two things. It protects the purity of the church, and it hopes for the restoration of the unrepentant sinner. Let's, let's dive into this text together, looking at the first point, that loving church discipline is enacted with great sorrow. It's enacted with great sorrow. So Paul had heard the reports of the church's failure to deal with this issue of sexual immorality. And Paul says this is an issue in the church, an issue of sin that not even pagans tolerate. But yet the church of Corinth is tolerating it. I mean, there are few acts today that would offend our culture when it comes to sexuality. But not even incest is accepted today. Nor was it accepted in pagan Corinth. But yet the church had a man committing incest, and Paul is absolutely shocked, flabbergasted, disturbed that the Corinthian church is ambivalent at best to this man's open and public sin. That the church of Corinth is almost proud of the fact that they have not disciplined this man. He says that they're being arrogant, right? Verse 2, they're being arrogant about this? I mean, the church of Corinth considered themselves a community of love, right? Of tolerance, of proudly declaring themselves a, a safe place for people. 
You know, you're free to be you. You're free to do it your way here at the Church of Corinth, right? And so they kind of declared themselves, we're a, we're a no-judgment zone. How many churches advertise themselves like that, right? And Paul is astonished. He's astonished that their attitude is like this because in their failure to take sin seriously, it is having insidious effects upon the local church, effects that we'll talk about later on in the passage. So before we even talk about church discipline itself, we have to make sure we get our attitude right as we go about it. There are two opposite and two equally wrong attitudes to have as we approach this topic of church discipline. The first one is stated explicitly in this text. The other is stated implicitly. So let's talk about the first one. And this is just what the Church of Corinth is doing, right? They're boasting that they're not doing anything about it. They're taking pride in the fact that, hey, we don't practice church discipline here. That's the wrong attitude, taking pridefulness and your negligence. And this was Corinth's attitude. They thought they were doing the right thing by doing nothing. They had thought that they were being accepting and loving, and they took pride in the fact that they had done nothing. This is a wrong attitude. And it's a wrong attitude that most American Christians are guilty of. That there are many churches across our country, from sea to shining sea, including Hawaii and Alaska, right? Don't want to forget them. But there are many churches across our land who are permissive of these things, right? They're permissive of sexual sin, of adultery, of homosexuality, of misogyny, right? They kind of turn a blind eye towards them. They just ignore them. They brush them under the rug. They just pretend like it's not going on. And some churches, of course, openly embrace these practices. These churches become defenders of sinful actions, and they take great pride of their ability to be tolerant and tend to, to thumb their nose down to conservative churches who have failed to join in with the sexual revolution taking place in our society. So conservative churches who tend to hold quite firmly to the authority of God's word, guess what? We're going to increasingly find ourselves at odds in this culture in which we live. We will be labeled as unloving, we will be labeled as being intolerant by the watching world, but we must get one thing straight. Calling sin, sin is never an unloving thing to do. In fact, it is the loving thing to do. So the first wrong attitude we have to be on guard against is, is the Corinthian attitude of boasting in our permissiveness and tolerance, right? We, we need to be faithful to God's word while loving people. Those two are mutually exclusive, even though people like to pit them against each other. So that's the one wrong attitude, but a second wrong attitude is implied in the text, and it's this, it's that we shouldn't be gleeful and sadistic in our practice of corrective church discipline, right? We shouldn't get our jollies by recognizing that, hey, there's a brother in the church who's stumbling in sin, now's my chance to pounce on him, right? That's not the attitude we need to have. That's the wrong attitude. That's the pharisaical attitude who seemed to get excited anytime they saw somebody stumbling in sin. Oh, man, this is our opportunity to, to correct them and to show them the right way and to, to make ourselves look superior over them. That's, that is not the attitude to have. This idea of self-righteous condemnation, getting excited when people fall into sin, that is just as abominable as, as doing nothing at all, right? We must never pursue church discipline with an attitude that delights in the opportunity of pouncing on somebody in sin. So what is the right attitude? Well, Paul tells us. 
Paul makes it explicit that our attitude should be that of mourning, of grieving, of sorrow. That when a member of the body is engaged in a pattern of hard-heartedness and sin, our response should be sorrow. We are filled with sorrow because we know, right, that sin is deceitful. And sin promises joy, but it only leads to destruction. And the thought of one of our own, brothers and sisters, people whom we love, people who we have pledged ourselves to care for, the thought of them being destroyed by sin ought to fill our hearts with great sorrow and concern and heaviness. We know that a pattern of unrepentant sin in a person's life indicates that they haven't been born again. And so we struggle and we pray and we speak and we have hard conversations in hope that they would be led by the Spirit to repentance. We mourn because enacting church discipline means that our friend might not know Christ. And as people who grieve for the lost, we must mourn and have sorrow over our brother's sin, never delight and rejoice in it. This is the attitude we must have as a church whenever corrective church discipline is needed. Not an attitude of indifference, nor an attitude of joy, but an attitude of sorrow. It means we weep. It means we grieve. It means we pray. It means we hope. We don't pursue church discipline in some sort of legalistic delight to pounce on others' failures, but rather we pursue church discipline in love because we're burdened for their soul. That leads us to the second characteristic of church discipline, corrective church discipline I want to draw out for us this morning. And it's this, that loving church discipline hopes for the restoration of the sinner. It hopes for the restoration of the sinner. That's the aim. That's the goal. Right, so in response to this man's open and flagrant sin, you guys know Paul. He doesn't hold back any punches, right? He, he makes it pretty clear. Remove the man from the fellowship of the church. That's what you need to do. He charges them, based on the authority of Christ and his own apostolic authority, that they need to remove this man from the body. So though Paul isn't there physically, he says, I'm there spiritually. I'm writing to you. I've already pronounced judgment on him. So should you. And Paul makes this connection explicit because he establishes that the church is accountable to Christ for how they will handle this situation. Right? This is Christ's church, not yours, not mine. And so Jesus decides how we handle issues like this. We are accountable for Christ for how we do it. We aren't free to run the church the way we want the church to be run. And we are not free to permit sin where Christ has forbid it. We aren't free to bind when Christ has called us to loose. So when the church assembles, Paul says, in Christ's name and under his lordship, they are to execute the judgment of Christ upon this man, removing him from the membership of the church and delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, doesn't that sound a little harsh? What does Paul mean when he tells the church to deliver the man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, ultimately, he's referring to the removal of church membership, that he's no longer a part of the body, that he's cast out into the world, so to speak. And this is the, the final and last effort that Jesus has given the church, that third and final step after several attempts of pleading and begging. Even the church publicly 
making a public call for this person to repent. If they still don't repent, then the church is to remove them from membership. And if the unrepentant sinner refuses to respond, that's what the church must do. Now notice the key phrase in all this is unrepentant sinners. Unrepentant sin. That as Christians, we sin all the time, right? That's why we do our confession time every Sunday. Because we all sin in so many different ways. Not because we want to sin, but because we are sinners, redeemed sinners, but sinners nonetheless, who are still putting to death the flesh by the power of God's Spirit. But what Paul has in mind here, and when we talk about church discipline and and removing somebody from the body, we're speaking of unrepentant sinners. These are Christians, or professed Christians, who are engaged in some sort of public sin in a very clear and indisputable way, who refuse to heed the plain and clear instructions of God's word or the warning of the church. They just refuse. I don't care what God's word says. I'm cheating on my wife anyway. That's a situation of unrepentance. Like as Christians, when we sin, the spirit by his grace convicts us of that sin and leads us to repentance. Church discipline is reserved for those who profess Christ and who yet continue to exhibit a hard hardness to his word. So when a church does church discipline, what is actually going on? What is the church actually saying? Well, there's two things. First, the church is saying that such sinful actions are not appropriate behavior for someone who professes to be a Christian. It's a clear rejection, a repudiation of the way that person lives their life. So by the Corinthian church, they're keeping this man committing incest as a member of their church. And by the man being a member in good standing at the church, the church is in many ways endorsing his sin to the world. Saying, hey, this is the way Christians live. They sleep with their mother-in-laws, right? This is the way Christians live. They commit sexual sin. Sure, you can be a follower of Jesus and commit all sorts of lewd acts. That's what the Corinthian church is saying by keeping this man in membership. So by removing the man from the membership of the church, they're saying quite clearly that such sinful acts are not fitting for a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not appropriate. I mean, how many times have we heard the church is filled with hypocrites? Of course, in so many ways it's true. You and I are hypocrites every day. But in so many times, in so many ways, the church has turned a blind eye to these issues. And they hear stories of men who go to church on Sunday and, and ladies who go to church on Sunday and put on their church face and their church mask and are cheating, stealing, sleeping all during the week. And everybody knows it. And yet the, the witness of the church is tarnished. The holiness of the church is tainted because the church has failed to act. And we're communicating this is the way Christians live. They look just like the rest of the world. But when Christ has called us to holiness, he's called us to be holy as he is holy. So the church is making a very clear declaration. But secondly, there's something else happened. The church is withdrawing their public endorsement of this man's salvation, which is quite serious, isn't it? Church membership, you might not think of it this way, but church membership is an endorsement of a person's salvation. It doesn't cause someone's salvation, but, but when you're 
granted membership in a local church, the church, this is why we vote on members, right? This is why the church votes on who its members are, because the church is collectively saying together, yes, we believe from your testimony and from your life that you have been born again, that you have truly repented of your sin, and that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is saying we affirm as best as we can possibly distinguish, after all, we're not God, but as best as we can possibly distinguish that you are truly a Christian. So when a person is removed from the membership of the church through corrective church discipline, it means that the church can no longer give that endorsement. Again, it's not saying that they're not Christian per se. It's just saying we can't testify that you are anymore because you are an unrepentant sin. As Jesus says, we will know a tree by its fruit. And so when bad fruit is evidenced in the life of someone who professes Christ and they begin in this lifestyle of unrepentant sin, it indicates that the fruit is bad because the root is bad. The reason you are in unrepentant sin is because you don't have the Spirit of God in your heart causing you to produce good fruit and leading you into repentance. So by removing that person from membership, the church body declares that we cannot affirm your salvation anymore. In fact, it's much more serious than just that. It's more than just a withdrawal of their affirmation, but it's a statement that we believe you to be lost, and we believe that you need to repent your sin and trust in Christ. This is why Paul tells them to hand the man over to Satan, right? The church removes the unrepentant member in hopes, right? In hopes that such drastic action would awaken the wayward sinner into the spiritual danger that they're in. That when the church body says to you, we don't think you know Jesus, that hopefully is a wake-up call to them, right? It's a loving plea to the unrepentant, and it's a firm warning in hopes that they might be saved. We don't want them to be deceived, right? This is what Paul says, that the church is to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Look at what he says, right, in the text. It states very clearly, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. That's why they're doing this. So that the man might be saved. The aim of church discipline is restoration. It's restoration. It's a heartfelt, sorrowful prayer of the church that through the removal of the individual, that they might be one to the Lord. Sometimes the most gracious things you can do for people is to let them hit rock bottom. And as the church withdraws their fellowship from this unrepentant member, we hope that the spiral of destruction of their sin might awaken them to their need for Christ and that they would truly repent and believe in Jesus. This is why corrective church discipline is the most loving thing we can do. Our culture doesn't see it as loving, but in fact, if we understand the Bible's definition of love, it's the most loving thing we can do. It would be unloving to, for the church to tolerate this man in his sin, wouldn't it? To tacitly approve of his salvation by their inaction, only for him to wake up one morning and find himself in hell because the church never loved him enough to discipline him. The most loving thing to do for the sake of his eternity is to confront him and correct him and to remove him if necessary. Because when a church removes a member, the church is speaking in one voice, one urgent plea. Brother, we love you. We care for you. We are burdened for your soul. 
And based off of your continued sin, after multiple efforts and long conversations of pleading with you to repent, we can no longer affirm that you know Christ. But we believe you to be lost in your sin and on a path towards hell. And in love, we urge you, we beg you, we plead with you to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ, who is the only redeemer of our souls. He is filled with grace. Trust him today. And it would fill our hearts, right, with with great thanksgiving and joy to welcome you back, to restore you into the fellowship of this church. And know that we will continue to pray for the salvation of your soul. When a church enacts corrective church discipline that leads to excommunication, That is the attitude, that is the heart, that is the aim, that they might be restored. We enact corrective church discipline so that we hope and pray for restoration. It's an act of love for the sinner in hopes that through the destruction of their flesh and their sin, they might be awakened to their helplessness, that they might be broken in their sin, and that they might trust in Christ for their salvation. And that leads to the third reason we practice church discipline, right? Loving church discipline protects the purity of the church. It protects the purity of the church. Sin in the church is like a virus, a virus. It spreads. Once it gets in there, it tends to spread to every other part of the body. And when sin is left uncorrected in each other's lives, it ends up getting all throughout the body. And the more it spreads, the harder it's to deal with the infection. So when, for example, when a church gossip goes about their divisive sin, unchecked, uncorrected, right? Others in the body tend to get caught up in the same sin. It spreads, right? One person starts it, it spreads to others. And so there's a reason why corrective discipline is not just some public thing we do in the extreme cases, but it's something we do all the time in our life together, right? It ought to be happening on an individual level. And if sinful attitudes go unchecked, then the body tends to become a grumbling and bitter community of gossips. And they create cynicism and distrust among the members over time. So when we express such sinful attitudes, sinful social sins, we need to to come to one another and correct one another, lest those sins begin to poison the well of the church's purity and unity. Right? This is why corrective church discipline ought to be happening all the time in our lives together. There's a reason why Paul instructs the church to practice church discipline. This is the reason why, right? He uses the illustration of bread beginning in verse 6. And he makes the point that it only takes a little bit of leaven, right? A little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast to, to leaven the whole lump. And so he says, hearkening back to the Passover, right? Christ is our Passover lamb. He has called us into holiness. And we as his people are to be pure from sin. Like unleavened bread is pure from heaven. And so, so when the church turns a blind eye to the sin in the body, that little sin begins to spread and spread and spread throughout the whole body. And in the case of this man in 1 Corinthians 5, again, it's communicating, right? By their inaction that the church approves of such behavior, that such sexual immorality is tolerated. And other members will begin to look at this guy and say, well, if he can do that, well, I can do this over here, right? What's the big deal? If the church doesn't care if he does that, then certainly I can go over here and do this. And that's what tends to happen. And so before long, that little sin begins to corrupt the entire church body, and the holiness upon which Christ has called the church becomes obscure 
and therefore the witness of the church becomes obscure. For the glory of God and for the faithful witness of Redemption Church, we must take the holiness of the church seriously. This means that we must faithfully exhort and correct one another in sin all the time, individually, privately, right? Of course, if for, for flagrant sin, for public sins, these such sins are ultimately addressed before the entire congregation, ultimately, if they get to that point, right? But these ought to be happening on an individual level all the time, that we should have relationships with one another in the body, that such correction is welcomed and encouraged and expected from one another, that we should be prepared to give correction to others and to receive correction from others, and that means that you must be humble, right? A lot of times these corrections are small, but they're very, very important, right? So Say, for example, you spoke harshly to another member in the church, maybe in a way that just wasn't fitting for building up. It happens. You've done it. I've done it. We've all been a little firmer, a little harsher than we should have been, right? But a lot of times we don't realize we do that when we do it, right? And so this is why we need another brother in the church, right, another sister to come up to us and say, you know what, I, I heard you say that to this person, and it just felt a little harsh, a little mean-spirited, Watch your attitude. Make sure you're, you're, you're speaking in such a way that you're building up your brother or sister, not tearing them down. That sort of correction should be happening all the time and should be welcomed, right? Re- instead of responding, hey, you don't know what I'm talking about. Don't judge me, right? Rather, we should say, brother, sister, thank you for telling me that. You're right. I probably did speak a little harsher than I should. I'm going to, one, be on guard. I don't do that again. And two, I'm going to go talk to them and make sure that I, I apologize for the way I said what I said. Right? That should be happening on the time. Right? We, we have to be on guard against these sins. And so corrective church discipline should be a part of our life together all the time because it's everybody's job to protect the holiness of the church, of Christ's church. That means loving each other enough and that we deal with leaven in the body because we know that if it's left unchecked, what tends to happen is that it begins to spread throughout the whole lump. So when we see the leaven, as Paul says, of malice or evil begin to show up in Redemption Church, then we must respond with sincerity and truth. So we must not be threatened or personally affronted when someone comes up and speaks to us in this way. We must have the maturity to listen, knowing that our own hearts can be sinful and can be deceived, and we must receive it humbly. We thank the person for the courage to correct us, and then we adjust accordingly. It's really simple, right? And if we give correction, if you give correction to another, which you should do, you have to make sure you're doing it with the right heart as well, right? We must ensure that we are communicating from a position of love, that we truly have the good of our other brother and sister in mind when we speak to correct them. We must never communicate correction from a position of pride and self-righteousness. So loving church discipline protects the purity and the unity of the church. But fourthly, and finally this morning, we also see that loving church discipline is commanded by God. God tells us to do it, right? Look at verse 9 through 13. I mean, there are a lot of misunderstandings about church discipline. Some mistakenly think that church discipline is kind of an effort for the church to shun or avoid anyone who might be a sinner. However, that's simply not the truth, right? That's not what Paul says. 
In fact, Paul says the people of Christ ought to surround themselves with people who don't know Christ and who live in sin. Because after all, we can't evangelize to people. We can't share the hope of Christ with people if we don't know any people who don't know Christ. Right? We can't be faithful with the gospel if we're not building relationships with those who are far from the Lord. So God's command to practice church discipline is not an excuse for you or I to retreat further into our Christian bubble where everyone thinks and acts like you do. Paul helps clear up this misunderstanding. Look at what he says in verse 9. He refers to an instruction he previously gave to the Corinthian church in a previous letter. An instruction not to associate with sexually immoral people. All the, the legalists in the room said amen, right? So, but, but look at what he says later on, right? When Paul mentions this, he explicitly states, he says, when I'm talking about not associating with sexually immoral people, I'm not talking about people who don't know Christ. I'm not talking about them. Not at all, he says, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. After all, sexual sinners are all over the place, right? Greedy people are all over the place. Immoral people are all over the place. And if we are to be obedient to the Great Commission, it means we must surround ourselves with such sinners just like Jesus did. At Redemption Church, we want to welcome and minister to broken and addicted people, to people who are consumed by their carnal delights and their destitute poverty of sin. And no matter the offensiveness of their sin, we want to lovingly share with them the life-changing good news of Christ Jesus, a gospel message that demands both repentance and faith. Perhaps this morning you're, you're here and, and you're not really sure what you believe in. You've kind of stumbled in this morning and perhaps in your life you have a pattern of sin in your life and today you are welcomed and you will always be welcomed at Redemption Church and because we long to to minister to you, to, to share with you, to, to speak to you the good news of Jesus Christ that has transformed our lives. That Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners like you, like me. And when the good news of the gospel is that anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus will be saved. That Christ has endured the sufferings of the cross, that his blood was spilled for the payment of our sin. So that anyone who confesses Christ, turns from their sins, and trusts in Jesus would be reconciled to God and receive forgiveness from Christ. But as we think about this good news of the gospel message, it's, this gospel call involves acknowledging our sin and turning from our sin to Christ. So when Paul says not to associate with sexually immoral people, who's he talking about then? If he's not talking about the lost, he's not referring to people outside the church. He's referring to people inside the church, right? Look at carefully at verse 11. He says, but now I am writing to you <coughs> not to associate with anyone, here's the key phrase, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or violent drunker or swindlered, not even to eat with such a one. The key phrase there, right, being anyone who bears the name of brother. Anyone who professes Christ, right? Church membership and thus church discipline puts a line in the sand distinguishing the people of Christ from the people of the world. And so when a person 
confesses and states himself to be a follower of Jesus, yet they're living in a pattern of unrepentant sin, Paul says the church is to enact church discipline in such cases. And by discipline, the church clearly delineates and communicates who the church is. It declares to the world that such behavior is not befitting a person who calls themselves a brother in Christ. The hope, of course, is that the one excommunicated would be won over, that they would repent and return to Christ and thus to the church. You see, church discipline is not for those who haven't yet confessed Christ, but rather it's for those who have confessed lives, who confessed Christ, and whose lives contradict that confession. With this, the church has a God-given responsibility to judge those inside the church. Notice I said inside the church, not outside the church, but those inside the church. The church has this responsibility of binding and loosing, and that is a responsibility that must be taken seriously. So I know that this idea of the church judging its members sounds incredibly offensive to our culture today sounds incredible. Doesn't Jesus say, judge not that you be not judged? Well, he's not talking about the church, right? He's, he's talking about those outside the church. And Paul would say the same thing. You're not to judge those outside the church. Leave them to the Lord. What you have a responsibility to judge are those whom you have pledged yourself to in the covenant community of the local church. This is what the text says, and it's implicit to the biblical vision of church membership, that if the church is a covenant community, of believers who have agreed to care for one another till Christ returns, it means that we must clearly make judgments on sin within the body. And such judgment is not communicated in some sort of self-righteous pride to make ourselves better than everybody else, but rather it's expressed in a humble and caring and loving concern for their soul. For those outside the church, we have no right to judge. But for those within the covenant community of the church, we have a command from God to judge. And not only do we have a command of God to judge, but if by a member you've given people permission to judge you and to watch out for you, to correct you. You've given permission to speak truth, for, for the body to speak truth into your life. So, so this is what we see, the pattern of church discipline in the local church and hopes that those we correct would see the sinfulness of their ways and return to Christ. And so Paul concludes, right, looking at the end of verse 12 with a prohibition taken straight out of the Old Testament law, right? That just like Israel, the church is to purge the evil person from among you. I've sought to show you this morning from 1 Corinthians 5 that church discipline sounds incredibly offensive, but it's actually an act of great love. If I was a betting man, but I'm not, I would probably guess that probably none of you have ever heard a whole sermon devoted to the topic of church discipline. But corrective church discipline is a neglected area in the church, but it's a loving act, right? That protects the purity of the church and hopes for the restoration of the unrepentant sinner. The church is a family, right? And a family without discipline is a dysfunctional one. When the parents discipline their children, it's not out of hate but out of love for them. In the same way, when the church enacts corrective church discipline, it's lovingly seeking to restore them in Christ. So as we continue to think about church membership at Redemption Church, we aim to take church membership seriously. 
And as the founding members of Redemption Church prepare for that covenant that they will make with one another, we will be committing, as part of that covenant, which we'll talk about tonight, by the way, we'll talk about what it means to care for each other's souls, to keep watch, and what it means, right? It means that we are giving each other permission for other members in the church to discipline us, both formatively and correctively, right? It means that I'm giving you, as a member of the church, I'm not above this as a pastor, right? It means that that I'm giving you, as the Covenant Community of Redemption Church, permission to be involved in my life. It means that I'm giving you authorization to not only be involved in my life, but to not let me hide in isolation. It means that I'm giving you permission to correct me and even to enact church discipline on me if I stray in unrepentant sin. Now, why would I ever want to agree to that? Why would you ever want to agree to that? Well, it goes back to what we learned in Hebrews, right? You need this. I need this. Why would I want to expose myself to the discipline of the church as a church member? Put simply, my sin, your sin is too great Your heart cannot be trusted. My heart is blind and deceitful, and I need other believers who are God's gift to me to partner with me in keeping watch over my soul so that I might make it to the end, so that I might persevere in Christ. And that means I must live my life intimately and vulnerably in the covenant community of the church. And though public corrective discipline will hopefully be rare, in the church, we cannot shy away from the obedience to it in the scriptures. Church discipline is an act of love that protects the purity and witness of the church, but also aims for the restoration of wayward brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Father, we know that this idea of church discipline is a difficult topic to talk about, It's a difficult area to think through. But, Father, we know that your word is good, all of it. All of it is profitable for the building up of your church. And, Father, as we think about what it means to be a church member and what it will mean to be a member at Redemption Church, we know that part of being a part of the body is giving permission to other members of the body to discipline us not just correctively, but formatively encouraging us and helping us to grow in Christ, but also keeping watch over our souls in such a way that we confront each other in sin. Father, we pray that there will be few, if any, cases that will ever require public church discipline that requires the action of the entire body of the church. Father, we pray that you would protect us from the enemy in such a way that it would never come to that. But, Father, if it ever does, Father, I pray that we would love each other well enough that we wouldn't be cowards, that we wouldn't be afraid, that we wouldn't be indifferent and apathetic, but that we would love each other enough to speak truth even when it hurts, even through weeping and tears, so that we might plead for the restoration of our fallen brother or sister, so that they might be restored in Christ that they might repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your gospel, your gospel, which is for all people who might respond in repentance and faith. Father, we are thankful that even though a person might be disciplined in the church, even removed from the body, hope is not lost. 
Your spirit is still sovereign and good. And Lord, we pray that through the act of church discipline, Lord, that sinners are drawn to Christ, perhaps for the first time in repentance and faith. Father, as we continue to think and search your word on these matters, give us understanding and give us grace. And Lord, as we sing, Lord, may we sing in thanksgiving to the love that you have given us and to the gospel that gives us hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.